0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Friday evening. Technically, this is the after show, but it seems like the news is quite dark these days, and maybe we should just stick to a newsier format tonight. However, we'll still have a little opportunity to to lighten things up towards the end of the show. Hi, Eric. How are you? Eric Garland is with us, the intelligence analyst who's often with us. How are you, Eric? Good evening, Zev. Quite a news day. I don't know how much sleep you're getting. I'm not getting very much sleep because the news keeps changing every few minutes. Wars are like that. Yeah, they certainly are. There's a lot to talk about tonight. Coming up, I've got an interview with someone who's a 26-year-old woman who was in Kiev, who'd escaped from Kiev to the western part of Ukraine. Now she's faced with this new problem of, as the war begins to approach the western part of Ukraine, does she leave her parents behind and escape to the the west, or does she stay there and protect them? It's a really interesting interview that tracks her entire experience from the start of the war uh, until now and it's a quite an interesting ordeal that she and many others are having right now as the war seems to be moving pretty much towards the west and also towards kiev where there is another attempt tonight it looks like to begin that siege of kiev which we've been worrying about for so long here on narrative so that's coming up plus we've got some interesting news about how putin is interacting with uh his fsb you know the fsb supposedly A domestic intelligence thing, I always thought. But apparently they have a foreign intelligence arm. And it's that foreign intelligence arm that has been at the mercy of Putin's rage, apparently, for getting it all wrong. And we'll bring you details of that in just a few minutes as well. But first, Eric, I want to hear from you. Uh, You know, the war is changing. It seems like we've seen a heightened awareness of these acts of war uh, that seem to have, you know, in Mariupol, we've had this maternity hospital that was attacked. There was a psychiatric hospital attacked in Kharkiv last night the indiscriminate attacks by putin's armies and missiles are beginning to me to feel like genocidal attack like it doesn't even look like he's even pretending to to just uh, you know target uh, the military well
1: let's let's remember that uh, russia's number one weapon is propaganda and uh, the creation of uh, narratives and uh, the use of i mean information warfare is probably the one they're best at at this mm-hmm. point they uh they can't keep an aircraft carrier going, and you know very obviously their conventional military uh, has a lot of issues, and uh, especially since their economy is going to collapse behind uh, the front lines, mm-hmm. um, you know their ability to sustain conventional military is going to be curtailed to a very short period of time compared with a lot of conflicts that we've seen in the modern era so information warfare is the best thing. That uh, Russia's had in a while. What's interesting is, after, you know, five, well, depending on how you want to put it, between five and eight years, you can either start with uh, perhaps uh, Russia's successful support of Donald Trump's presidency or go all the way back to the invasion of Crimea and uh, the Donbas and how they were able to spin that to the world community. At the same time that uh, they were welcoming guys like Edward Snowden, who were nominally exposing uh, America's war crimes to the world. So, they, they, you know, the Russians really did a lot with not much resource and managed to grab a hold of the world narrative and recast their aggression and their transgression of uh, you know, long held diplomatic norms, such as not invading. The borders of your neighbors with irregular troops and going well. This is well. There's some people who speak this language Mm. here. I mean, the United Nations could not tolerate that in every country, any set of countries where that's true, because language groups cross boundaries all the time. Uh, I don't think the United States government would particularly put up with it if Canada invaded northern Vermont and northern Maine just because there are French speakers there. (laughs) No, Um, I think so. Happens, you know. It's true. But if the, you know, the Quebec government started a propaganda campaign about how we've got to rescue, uh, you know, Bouchard and Ducharme and uh, Charbonneau, well, it would could- not, it would ring very hollow. And that's yeah. what Russia has essentially done. So, you know, if they're an information warfare state, what they've got is terror and uh, to show the Ukrainian citizens and anyone who would challenge them that they're willing to do whatever it takes. Mm. And that includes for them, you know, atrocities. That's a very typical Russian attitude. You know, after five to eight years of dealing with them, the Western nations have a way of finally combating that narrative and going, no, no, we're going to make this about your atrocities and Mm. your incompetence. So they are not able to grab a hold of the narrative the way they were able to when they invaded and took crimea illegally when they invaded the donbas illegally they don't have access to that we've stopped that or they're getting you know intense fighting so at least our own people don't buy it the way People bought into the Ed Snowden narrative.
0: I think it's so interesting what you're saying is that basically the 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 worse the atrocities, the more weak Putin might actually be because it really is all he has at this point. You know, strategically, he's not doing very well on the battlefield. So what he has in this information war is the appearance of atrocities and terror, which he you know will intensify because that's all he has. It is actually a bit of a sign of weakness.
1: Well, I mean, he's for all he's talking about the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, mm-hmm. he's basically turned, um, you know, the or rather, his little green men and his little green mobbed up political puppets have basically suspended the rule of law, is my understanding in those two areas, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, those areas have been turned into two of the biggest hellholes in Europe. No one would want to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he doesn't. You know, he doesn't have anything other than terror. Of you know, look yeah. what, what he does in the the Donbas region. This is a classic Russian technique. You 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 grab some place and then you issue demands that are ridiculous. And you say, well, of course, I get to keep what I already have, but mm. you need to give me more here so I don't continue all the way to your capital city. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, yeah. it's so it's a, the mob basically
1: you know uh, aggressive dogs are the same way and you yeah. gotta snap in the snout so they uh understand not to go any further exactly That's how you have to deal with guys like putin
0: um just last night you know the, in, in in terms of increasing the range of where putin and the russians were invading uh there were two missiles uh targeted or several missiles targeted at two new cities that had not been targeted before to dnipro and lutsk uh you dnipro is uh sort of westwards of Mariupol over there and towards the the path to Kiev. This made a lot of people worried that, you know, perhaps, perhaps this means that he's starting to broaden his attack outside of that eastern and southern part of Ukraine, which he had been targeting until now. It's unclear whether that's in fact turning out to be the case. You know, those missiles did land in Dnipro and they caused some damage and in Lutsk as well. Lutsk are very worrying, of course, because it's just near Kiev, which is where a lot of the diplomats are and a lot of the other you know, the escaped population from the east has gone to Lviv. So there's concern around there. But, you know, for all of those missile attacks, that did not seem to be anything more than that. I mean, it just seems like lone missiles being launched, you know, from outside of the country, certainly targeting new cities. But, you know, the way they've been targeting cities, it's been sort of indiscriminate up until now. And then there's been conversation all night long and all day about what's going on with the convoy around Kiev. And it turns out that, the convoy had begun to be broken apart. It seemed to have sections of it were peeling off from the main section. This is the convoy that had been stalled there outside of Kiev since almost day one. And people had assumed it was not going anywhere, but now different sections of that have broken off. And just 30 or 40 minutes before we went on the air tonight, one of the journalists who I do really trust out of Kiev independent newspaper, he's been my source for accurate information up until now on almost everything, Elia. Ponomarenko, who's from the Kiev Independent newspaper. And he posted what he said was a video of the convoy being ambushed along the way to wherever. All it says above it is the convoy being ambushed. And because it's him, and because I've trusted his feed all the way through this, and because he is probably the, you know, with a million followers, one of the key people that many, many journalists and others are following in terms of what's happening in the war there, under the headline of Russian Convoy Ambushed, he posted this video. Now, I say I've not been able to verify this video to myself, but I'm going to take his word for it because it is him. And I'm going to say that accompanied by some unusual music, which is kind of annoying. I wish they hadn't had the music on, but what you're seeing is a video that's compiled from the air, from drone and from footage taken on the ground and compiled together in what Ilya says is a convoy being ambushed. So it's been uh, widely shared. Let's take a look at this briefly. It's definitely worth taking a look at what might have happened to parts of that convoy today. It is disturbing, by the way, I should say. That appears to be what it is. It appears to be a convoy of uh, Russian tanks being ambushed along the way as they were moving today. We know they were on the move today and there was some interesting reporting that was very controversial around whether this was viewed as something that was going to be a serious threat to Kiev overnight or not. And maybe this is one of the reasons that Kiev did not uh, get uh, so heavily hit yet so far tonight. Yeah, go ahead.
1: You know, I, I normally would uh, judge these based on after-action reports uh, that uh, had yeah. a, a higher degree of um, of 100%. detail, but those are probably not going to be available on Twitter. But do, was there any identification as to where that was located, where that footage was taken from?
0: They do and provide from- coordinates. It's northeast of Kiev is what it says on the M01. Other than that, I don't have much more. You know, it is difficult for me to say, other than the fact that this guy's reporting has been... Spot on and accurate all the way throughout. And he's, you know, the leading online voice of this. I don't have any other details. So I am waiting to find out more. And I think it's interesting that it's just uh, it's worth keeping an eye on whether that is, in fact, a legitimate event that happened today. If it is, it'd be very dramatic if the Ukrainians were able to ambush parts of that convoy. And of course, this was just posted a short while ago. We're still in the heat of this. So we might not uh, know for a little bit of time here. Right. So, you know, one of the
1: reasons we've discussed on this program, the importance of air superiority, that neither uh, and there's many, many reports of this, that neither country has complete air superiority. The thought is uh, if uh, Ukraine is playing with a greater uh, number of modern jet fighter aircraft, uh, they can repel both bombers and fighters and drones and achieve the hope is that they will achieve air superiority. When you have that, then you can drop bombs on anybody that's on the ground that's coming for you. <laughs> and so, you know, the footage we just saw, mm-hmm. that seemed like a very typical pattern I've seen when people are trying to, you know, drive in a straight line and then somebody from above, perhaps in a drone or in a bomber aircraft or a fighter. My favorite being the A-10 tank killer, the A-10 warthog, um, you know, when they start shooting at you, you tend to look for other options very quickly. And they may not be available to you. So this is, you know, the fact that Russia is doing this without air superiority and they're moving, you know, armored divisions in different places without air cover, you know, in foreign territory with the where it is understood that this, you know, Ukraine, even though it's smaller than Russia, is not running out of materiel anytime soon. Because it's getting stuff delivered to it from its friends, perhaps not its allies or, you know, fighting a joint warfare operation here. But it's got friends giving them drones, Bayraktars Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, fighter aircraft. So tactically, it's kind of a mess for Putin there.
0: It sure does look like a mess for him. Yeah. But he still keeps going. You know, I mean, the fact is that he's, he's not withdrawing. He's not showing the signs of weakness on the battlefield, although strategically it doesn't make sense what he's up to. I mean you know, he's not going to win this war. Clearly the resistance is so high everywhere that even in the towns which had, you know, which they have been able to secure in these only two towns, they've been able to secure since the start of this war. I mean, never mind. you know, occupying, you actually have to run these towns afterwards. You have to, you know, get in there and and operate as a government and make sure that there's no opposition and all these other things you need to do. It's just not feasible for him to win. So his next goal is to just be as as much of a terrorist as he possibly can. And we've seen it in horrific shots over the last few days. The Mariupol maternity ward that was bombed. By the way, the woman there did actually end up uh, having a baby um, and gave birth today, which is some good news out of a horrific story. And then we also you know, saw these other pictures which we've been showing of babies being carried away after a bombed out bridge, uh, blocked the, the, the escape routes of her family. Uh, it's just horrific, horrific, clearly designed at targeting civilians here. And, you know, thousands of them appear to be dead. We do not have an official death toll from what's going on, but it looks to me that at least 1,500 people have died in Samaria Pol alone. The latest death toll, Kharkiv is also apparently in the thousands. So it's really dramatic numbers and that could only be achieved if you were targeting indiscriminately at these cities.
1: Right. And when we're talking about death tolls, we're not talking about Ukrainian regulars or, um, you know, we're not getting tallies of uh, how much of Helicopters, aircraft, armored vehicles are being taken out. Um, we're just hearing of a total number of bodies. Civilians. So these I want to, fork-
0: by the way, uh, these are civilians death toll. I was talking about the actual uh, army death toll is, is obviously lower, which is kind of amazing because it does indicate as well that they've been targeting civilians higher at the rate they have it. On the other side, the Russians have apparently lost between 9,000 and 12,000 troops which is a lot, a lot of the weaponry, a lot of the assets that they had in terms of vehicles and elsewhere and other things have been eliminated from the battlefield.
1: Fog of war, it's gonna be hard to pinpoint exactly where these uh, you know, where these numbers are and that'll mm. become more evident in time. What we can say now, and I'd like to forecast out a little bit to jump off what you said, we're entering into the third week here and mm. they haven't really got any of this country under control, they haven't got its capital. Compare that with the United States um, invading Iraq in 2003. Now, there was a great hay made from opponents to that action, as well as America's enemies spreading propaganda about how, you know, Iraq was this enormous mess up for the United States. And certainly the extremely long period of time we were trying to hold that territory where we had very little strategic planning around it in the early days, particular. People look at that and go, well, see, you know, the United States didn't do this very well. But let's look at the early days where we amassed our armed forces Mm -hmm. and we uh, went to take over Saddam Hussein's regime he was gone in a few days now wasn't he yeah he was
0: he's he was left <laughs> i mean, I mean he's found a little later well, but he left town <laughs>
1: there was no town left yeah <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> like we well i mean baghdad was still there but we're pros at this stuff we put warheads on foreheads we figure out exactly what you know where your military capabilities are and then we make them not there anymore we break people's stuff
0: and frankly, the Russians, way. the Russians have had experience in this I and mean, they've done this before. They've done it in Grozny. They've done it in Aleppo. They should know their way towards, uh, you know, a quick capture of a territory. However, they did not factor in the Ukrainian resistance. I mean, clearly this was something that they were either unaware of or misled or whatever. But that was a um, point of extreme weakness, I think, on behalf of the Russians. And it may be something that they've begun to, to realize
1: There's a a big difference between taking out anti-aircraft guns so that you can maintain air superiority and taking out daycares and hospitals. Yeah. You know, they both can create a body count, but they don't achieve your goals. And so Putin hasn't been able to get a country that it had that it knows extremely well that used to be part of its empire that is laced with its sympathizers particularly like the russian mob type oligarchs that run a lot of the country it's got intelligence officers interlaced throughout the place i mean it's a very big country let's not you know minimize that but there are very few places that are going to be as close to home and easy to take over if russia's a major military power than ukraine and right. we're in week three and he's taking shots at kindergartens and behind him the economy is burning mm-hmm. uh the law firms the banks the corporations started pulling out in the last 48 hours the united kingdom has finally sanctioned roman abramovich and odder after at long last i mean they've taken out the owner of chelsea
0: football club
1: mm-hmm. Um, I just saw Vexelberg
0: uh, was just targeted by the U.S. Treasury announced uh, in just the last half hour a new round of sanctions targeting uh, Victor Vexelberg and three family members of President Vladimir Putin's uh, spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. You know, Vexelberg's a big deal. Vexelberg is about as big a deal as you can get in oligarch land.
1: Vexelberg uh, laundered money into Trump's inauguration in 2017. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. Vexelberg met with Michael Cohen for a million dollar contract through Columbus Nova, and he invested in 2016 into Gawker, oddly enough. And, that is an interesting uh, thing. I, I often wondered uh, tell you what, some of the former Gawker outlets didn't like me at all for two or three years. Oh, they, yeah. You they, liked not like Gawker? Well, Gawker's now is, uh, sub- or well the, the subsequent. Um, zillion um webzines they have i think mm-hmm. they had somewhere between 100 and 200 different hit pieces though i have to say they gave me one of the, the better blurbs out there they called me a super spy so oh. i know they meant it as a as snarky but i'm gonna keep that
0: i'm we have a a super spy as a guest at our show tonight wow Wow, <laughs> that's, that's, that's described by Golkar. I feel very special to have to have a super spy Eric Garland there. Look at your from your, from your they're the den. only
1: ones who <laughs> they're the only ones who call me that though. Council, who, a is, fellow of the Council of uh, Competitive Intelligence Fellows, perhaps, but not a super spy. But so, you, there's a first for. First time for everything.
0: Is that your uh, big lair there that you have all the, you're able to monitor the entire world from your space over there? That we, it looks pretty high tech there, along with your. Oh, I mean,
1: before <laughs> you get the coveted Gizmodo Super Spy Award, <laughs> uh, they make sure that you have a
0: radar big enough oh. for. Uh- yeah, I hope you have a big radar. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> let me move on to talk about uh, what I think is really interesting that just broke as well earlier this evening. This comes out of what Putin's apparently doing in his rage, because it does appear to be rage. Again, there are a few people I trust online anymore. But in terms of a source around what's happening with the FSB, Andrei Soldatov is one of the people you go to to check out what's happening in the FSB. So when he says things I am... Um, interested in what he has to say. And tonight he has this little gem of a post and an article that's accompanying it that says Putin appears to be truly unhappy with the FSB in Ukraine. He attacked the five service SOIMS, I'm not even sure what that is, but the uh, FSB's foreign intelligence branch. Sergei Baseda, the head of the service and his deputy, Bolokhm, head of the DUI, placed under house arrest, according to my sources inside. So Andre is very plugged in. Andre is very plugged in. And this has also been published, by the way, by uh, a NATO affiliate. So I actually think that there's some veracity to this reporting that Putin may be a little unhappy with the FSB who were tasked, I gather, with being the, the eyes and ears for him in Ukraine. There were, according to this article, the Fifth Service was responsible for providing Putin with information about political events in Ukraine on the eve of the invasion. And it seems that after two weeks of the war, Putin finally realized that he was simply misled. The Fifth Service, fearful of angering the boss, simply supplied him with what Putin wanted to hear. And, you know, just to make sure that you you know that I'm not making this up, this is one article that uh, uh, was written by the guy, but there's also a follow-up now, which was published, as I said, by a NATO affiliate under the headline, Putin's place the spies under house arrest, which is uh, le- pretty legitimate looking in terms of the sourcing of who they are, because they're tied to NATO. Before you jump in then let me say a couple of other things. Our sources report that General Beseda and his deputy have been placed under house arrest. Among the reasons are the misuse of funds allocated for operations, as well as poor intelligence operations, you think? And indeed, the intelligence of Putin's career intelligence officer, as it turns out, was put out of hand very badly. That is interesting stuff. If I have you know reason to believe this is accurate. And if he's going after his intelligence people for providing bad intelligence ahead of an invasion, oi.
1: Well, first of all, they were just telling Putin what he wants to hear. That's a classic complaint from Russian intelligence versus uh, the old Soviet polit bureaus. Really, it's every intelligence analyst and the decision makers they serve at some level, but it's very classic with with Russia. I mean, frankly. They have the best intelligence services in the business. They innovate their look, if it were American basketball uh, in the collegiate uh, level, they're Duke or North Carolina State. We're maybe Michigan State. You know, we we're, we're, you know, we compete, but they're they have the the most famous program and the most talent on most days. And especially throughout the years where it could be quite um bad for your health to tell the bosses what they didn't want to hear. The intelligence services started shaping their intelligence products for their own health. And that's a cultural problem. This is, is. you know, a criticism of high level leaders all over the place. But if you have good intel people and you don't listen to them, then that's on you. Frankly, Russia would be a lot more successful as an empire. I'm glad they do this because they would be a lot more successful as their evil stuff if they did listen to their top level intel people who are usually the best in the world so difference. this doesn't surprise me
0: it would make a big difference in the fact that no one actually knew they were going to war i mean if you look at the, what the troops were on the ground at least saying and the commanders on the ground they thought they were just doing exercises they weren't even thinking they were going to war imagine if the fsb was under the same you know, illusions and then they thought well if you want to report about what's going on in ukraine sure i'll give him what he wants here you go, Mr. Putin. Here's what you expect from us because we want to keep our lives. Meanwhile, Putin lands up using it for an actual invasion. And, oh, lo and behold, it's wrong.
1: Uh, now this is getting very ironic. If we go back to, you know, the Iraq war in 2003, there was a lot of people threw shade at the United States intelligence community, which really peeved a lot of the USIC because it's like, no, we did not tell you to go ahead and just invade Iraq like that. I remember I lived in Washington and I was an intelligence analyst at the time and everyone was like, we're doing what? It's kind of ironic that 20 years later, this is where Putin seems to have been where it seems like yes. the boss made this political decision because look, he's, uh, you know, we're over in the United States, we're creeping towards prosecuting his favorite American presidential asset. You know, the world is aware of what they've been up to for. You know in terms of their dirty mob economics and their uh election interference and he faces a lot of pressure there one way or the other and you know this war could have been his way of getting his own people to rally around the flag and uh maybe he just told his spies all right well get me a good plan here and let's go just because you have a plan doesn't mean it's a feasible plan yeah. or a good one or anything so But you make a good point.
0: I mean, basically what he's stuck with is what the United States was stuck with in Iraq and Afghanistan. These were very difficult situations for him to find a way out. And just the same way as the United States was, you know, lured into those wars and found it hard to get out for 20 years. Putin is facing that kind of quagmire now in Ukraine and worse even because he he doesn't seem to have, you know, to be able to, to survive this because of the sanctions, as you point out you know the yeah no the, one I, was I call-
1: doing that to us people were cranky with us i remember being in, i was i went to paris for work in like 2002 You know, I never got hassled if people thought I was American. My speech is such that people don't think I'm American, but I look like a linebacker. I'm six foot one. And so they just assume. But I had some guy like behind me in line going, hey, New York, New York. And I was like, I'm not from there. But uh, this was his non-English speaking way of indicating that he was very upset about our upcoming war in Iraq. He let me know. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had all the signs, you know, so we had people. Our allies didn't You know, remember France didn't go with us on that um, wonderful adventure you know so we faced some heat but people didn't get rid of our currency they didn't shut down the, the federal reserve they weren't um, like shutting off your
0: trade you weren't given non-favored you know, the take, your the taking your no your famous favored uh, trade agreement with the G7 wasn't taken away no none of that happened so yeah
1: this was, it would have had to be like you you know we and we decide to invade iraq we go in it's been 2 days they freeze Steve Jobs' bank accounts yeah. they <laughs> they freeze Bill Gates's bank accounts ExxonMobil's um, exxon mobil's <laughs> cut off uh you know everyone's cut off yeah and general electric we seize all your your assets abroad and then we don't take the country for a while no no we we had saddam hussein out of there in what six
0: seven eight days We knew what to do. (laughs) Armed armed forces are no joke. The Russians are very uh, fond of uh, promoting their hybrid warfare, of saying, hey, look at us, we can do all this other stuff, the cyber stuff, and we military stuff. Well, apparently Biden has found a way to do a a different kind of hybrid warfare, which includes complete economic shutdown, include, and alongside a a military invasion. So maybe the uh, Biden doctrine beats the Gerasimov doctrine out a little bit in scale? Me thinks it might. I think it might along the way. We'll see what happens.
1: And I wonder how Beijing is looking at this because they're big fans. If you go all the way back to Sun Tzu, you know, the the wise general wins first and then shows up. Yeah. And if you can win a war without firing a shot even better on the Chinese uh, war doctrine scale. That's been yeah. around 2000 years. I wonder if Beijing's looking at the Biden administration going, well played, guys, but we're kind of nervous. Well, now, I think they were planning to do something in
0: Taiwan that does not look likely now. I mean, it looks like this thing, if it continues to go, is, is going to hamper their window of opportunity there. You know, It seems that Xi was hoping to do a little thing about in Taiwan ahead of his read statement, I guess his third term. I don't know what he's going to end up being um but i don't know if that's going to happen who knows if that's going to happen I, you know the north korea was firing some crazy missile last night or the night no, before no, don't they don't they always i think they always do but i think there is um instability in the asian peninsula too and it looked like to me like they were, they were doing this thing in coordination with each other that putin was going to go first and then there was you know that uh, china might have had an opportunity to do something I don't see how China gets to do anything in this category right now. They can't even be associating with Putin, never mind. You know, there's a lot of pressure for them to break up their I don't think it'll happen, but their alliance with Putin is under a lot of pressure.
1: TikTok just said we can no longer do business in Russia. Mm-hmm. TikTok, which mm-hmm. is scraping everybody's phones of all their data
0: and, you know, they've lost TikTok. Yeah. So I mean, also the United States, you know, uh, Jen Psaki, who's the best uh, feed in the world, you know, telling China yesterday that any attempts by China to help Russia out of its sanctions, it will be viewed very Mm -hmm. negatively by America and will be seen as, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll take some action there too. So I am really interested in where China lands on this because clearly they are faced in a very difficult position by Putin. They have to be seen to be opposing this because how could they be legitimate world leaders if they are supporting him and yet they continue to support him? It's going to start looking very bad for the Chinese, uh, which I think uh, if that was Mm -hmm. a move designed by the Biden administration, even more more props to them. Um, Another thing that may be a factor here in the FSB, by the way, remember these dudes, these are the Karadites or whatever they... uh, They're the Chechen Mafia knuckleheads. Right. So remember, um, these guys had had a column of like a thousand of them, all designed to come Mm -hmm. and and assassinate uh, Zelensky. And they were early on in the battle... Eliminated quite badly, apparently. Um, oh, oh,
1: they were. The, that's the assassin crew? Yeah, that's the
0: assassin crew. There's a thousand. Their paintball pants are really clean and everything. Wow. <laughs> Good luck, guys. So, the story behind this is that the FSB apparently leaked this information to the Ukrainian intelligence services that these guys were coming to, or our disgruntled FSB officer had leaked this information that these Karadites were coming to get to Zelensky. And that's one of the reasons this information was able to be acted upon and they were taken out. So, If you add that story that maybe someone from the FSB leaked this information to the Ukrainians to this new story of the FSB's heads are now under house arrest, you might see a correlation there.
1: Well, also, you know, within the last 48 hours, there was a briefing uh, from the heads of our intelligence community to the Senate Select Intelligence Committee and uh, Director Nakasone of the NSA confirmed that we've been providing signals intelligence which is about 80% of the actionable intelligence that America comes up with we've been given the the good stuff over to ukraine if people recall ancient history the dutch had the russian svr services on camera and totally keylogged for all their cyber attacks on the United States in 2014 and 15, where Russia was using its intelligence services to hack into the State Department and uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. NATO was tunneled so deep into Russia's intelligence services. We had their intro office cams hacked somehow, which that came out in January of 2018. I had the fun of uh, translating one of the articles from Dutch to English, uh, which was hilarious, and just in, in terms of its content, if these guys are making these plans to assassinate Zelensky, that's what the NSA, when we say we're given, you know, yeah. the, the Ukrainians intelligence, we're going to give them real good satellite imagery potentially mm-hmm. let them know where things are, but you know, the real good stuff, and that's something I believe it's unclassified that we've figured out how to link up the National Geospatial Intelligence Agencies, the, you know, GEOINT and signals intelligence. So basically we can tell you kind of what's going on, where it's going on more or yeah, less. So, so if they're trying to kill Zelensky and they're gonna be using, I don't know, telecommunications of some sort, there are a number of people that could bust them that. Now, if it's the FSB, that decided to screw over the Kadyrov regiment there. Then that's hilarious on another level. So yeah. where did where is it said that the the Russian intel services kind of went traitor on this one? Is well, that, what's a, that?
0: The, the original story? I, there's a few stories that came out. This particular element of the story came out of Pravda, which everyone is, uh, was surprised that it came out of Pravda because this element of the story said that a disgruntled FSB officer had told the Ukrainians about the assassin squads that arrived. So, you know, I'm just adding that note about the FSB to this note about him putting his his foreign uh, FSB chiefs under house arrest and I'm beginning to think, well, that looks like a little, you know, if you're connecting dots as we do occasionally here on the show, that's a hell of a connection. Uh, So they kind of
1: got their own Ed Snowden, who's an insider (laughs) in the intel world, who decided to go uh, and (laughs) tell.
0: I mean, this is an unpopular war. I mean, it's particularly unpopular amongst Russians who've now seen their entire world fall apart. I mean, it's not something that, you know, Russians are excited about. They're not necessarily in his corner either. He's having to go to the Middle East to bring in thousands of, of Syrian fighters because he's so short of fighters and he doesn't think he's going to get them uh, elsewhere. He's conscripting an army. But, of course, this army is not in favor of the war. And as you point out, in the art of war, you sort of have to have the will of the army and the moral authority to conduct a war or you're screwed. Yeah, doing that all in advance Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah in advance. is a good idea because... Ukraine didn't invade them by shipping Kiev via shipping container uh, across the Russian border that the Russians came with their stuff over to Ukraine this was all their idea
0: yeah this is all it's their just idea. not going well Zev it's not going well and you know it's awful that there are thousands of people in Ukraine that are suffering and that they're you know the victims of war is, is- it's cruel what's going on in Ukraine, and it's. I'm glad that we've heard tonight from Macron and from other people saying to Putin that he really has to stop. I mean, the kind of sanctions they're going to propose next, according to Macron, are going to be absolutely crippling. Although I don't even know what those might be because they've already been so many crippling sanctions, but. You know, this indiscriminate, I'm going to say genocide, I think it's beginning to look like genocide where you just sort of are just trying to wipe out towns for no good reason, like just to annihilate them and annihilate everyone in there and starve everyone and not provide them food, uh, water, supplies. And this is not within any understandable lines of war or acceptable military invasion that I think we're allowed to do in this sense in our modern days. I mean, I just I don't know the conventions as well as you do probably, but this seems like a we've really crossed the line here that the... This is in, you know, war crimes for sure. And they're doing badly. They are doing badly. Now, I've got this interview that I'm going to run now with someone who is terrific, Lilia Slobidan, who did this interview with me a few days ago. It's about 20 minutes, and I hope you'll enjoy every piece of this. And it's certainly interesting. It talks about how she's uh, dealing with the choices she's got to make as someone who comes from Kiev, who escaped to the Western part of Ukraine, where she's now with her parents. But, you know, she is facing some tough choices about what to do next. But she also talks about the trauma of war and the decision-making in leaving her home originally and it's also a very um, a poignant conversation about just how, you know, Ukraine and Zelensky are are proving to be incredible uh, warriors. But in the meantime, let me uh, wrap this up here. Is there anything else you want to say about anything else we've discussed so far, by the way? Is there anything to wrap up in terms of the intelligence news that we've had this evening? Still watching the radar yeah still a giant raider all right so here's my interview with lilia slobodan again it's day 10 or day 11 as it were for ukraine so i apologize if some of the timing seems out of whack but i uh, hope you enjoy this interview with lilia joining us from ukraine is lilia slobodian who is a ukrainian who's uh, escaped kiev but has uh, now found herself in the western part of Ukraine with her parents. And Lilia, welcome to Narrative. It's good to have you with us. It seems incredible how much your life has changed in just uh, 10 days.
2: Yeah, it changed the moment it started. I would mm-hmm. say, for me, it changed even before that. So when there was uh, a massive military buildup, there was a lot of talk that, you know, this that there is a threat, It might happen, Uh, Putin might uh, launch a full scale of war, and it might uh, impact the whole territory, not only the Eastern Ukraine, which already fought war for eight years. Uh, So there was this, like the anticipation of war is another kind of torture for me. I think it's really terrible because you live with realization that soon everything might change and you don't really know what to do
0: when we were watching the news in the days leading up it was interesting because there were two messages being sent to us there was the message being sent to us by the americans that said there's Mm -hmm. a big onslaught coming there's a large military buildup that's going to attack potentially all of ukraine and the other news we were being told was from the government of ukraine the zelensky office that said basically this is not going to happen there's no ways that uh, that ukraine is going to get invaded by russia what was it like for you which uh, were you hearing both of those messages and why do you think there was such a dichotomy there between those two
2: I would actually correct the Ukrainian side so uh-huh. I don't think Zelensky was saying this is not going to happen what Zelensky was saying is that we have been living with this threat mm-hmm. for years there is a risk it has always been like that but talking about the risk all the time doesn't help. So right. this was his key message. And I can understand that not only as a citizen who would like to hear good news, but also I understand how does it influence the investment market and the economy. People start like panicking, withdrawing cash, companies leave Ukraine, and it has a massive like economic toll. Without any military action on the ground, we already had a negative and economic toll. So I do understand him, but I also think that maybe he did downplay the threat in a way that was not necessarily helpful. So for me as a citizen, I would be much more, I don't know, comfortable if he would say, okay, we acknowledge this threat exists, but we are taking this and this to to be able to fight it back.
0: Right. Or you could take uh, those precautions that you might want to take personally in your life.
2: Yes and no, in the sense that the, the, the only precautionary would be to leave the country. Mm-hmm. Because as a civilian, how can you really help in the world? This is what I thought till the moment it started. But now I see that civilians are also really important in, uh, in, in the defiance and in helping to win this war because there are different fronts, not only the military one, but still, I don't know. It's a very like scary and unusual situation because yes, it is true. We have war for eight years in the east of Ukraine, but east of Ukraine is, I don't know, fifth percent of the territory or It's, it hasn't influenced everyone.
0: So when it finally did happen, when there was the outbreak of, of the further attack into Ukraine, what were you doing at the time? When did you first find out that this thing was really happening?
2: So I work in international organization and 10 days before February 24th, we got the news that all experts have to evacuate urgently. So it was after Biden's statement that there was a concrete date when the invasion will happen and that it will also involve Kyiv. Yeah, all the experts were evacuated and the local staff was kindly invited to leave Kiev. Mm. I was in a privileged position because I come from west of uh, Ukraine. So I have family here and I had a place to go. I will never forget the moment when you leave your house. And you have this idea on the back of your mind that this might be the last time Mm -hmm. you are here and it changes your perspective of traveling and moving completely. Like it's not just a ride home you take. Mm -hmm. It's completely different uh, meaning and context. For me, that was probably, it wasn't the hardest what the first day of war, but that was the first hurtful, yeah. I would say, episode. When
0: you're packing your apartment up or you're packing a your suitcase up, did you think about this might be the last time I will see this apartment or I might not be back to this part of Kiev at some point? Or did you always assume you're going to be back to the same place at some point? To
2: me, it was emotionally too hard to mm. somehow accept, to treat this escape as mm. something long lasting. Honestly, I didn't properly pack. I took my laptops, my, I don't know, yeah, documents mostly, but like really essentials because when I looked at my wardrobe, I was like, either take everything or nothing, I'm not able to take everything. So why would I take something? And I was kind of treating it. Okay. This is a two weeks escape, nothing big. I will definitely come back. I mean, I was, I was saying this to myself, but of course I deep inside, I knew what is the reason why I'm leaving. So there is always the yeah, emotional toll, but you try to somehow work with it uh, mm-hmm. and to stay optimistic.
0: Yeah. And now, how do you feel about things? Do you feel like you're going to go back to that apartment that you lived in in Kyiv and, and you'll be able to resume your life, even though it'll be obviously disrupted in many ways, but when this war is over, do you think you'll be returning?
2: I'm uh, 100% confident I will return to Kiev. Mm-hmm whether my apartment will be there. Yeah, I don't think I know that the city will look completely different to what I left, but I am 100% sure that Kiev will be Ukrainian and that I will go back because this is the city which is home to me and the city which I really
0: love. The amount of apartment buildings that have been struck in Mariupol, it looks like a, a completely different city. How do you feel about seeing those changes in your country, it must be devastating.
2: But many lessons learned from this, I think. First, I want to travel all around my country <laughs> after all of this right. ends. And I am ashamed that I haven't been everywhere like Sumy or Chernihiv, uh, the other cities that are heavily bombed right mm-hmm. now. Second, I'm pretty sure that we'll manage to rebuild it and properly to do it in a more fashionable way than the old Soviet architecture. <laughs> yeah,
0: <right. laughs>
2: i'm ready to set up my ngo to attract foreign investments to do whatever is needed just to rebuild the cities and i really believe that it is possible Mm -hmm. when there is like social cohesion and unity and it's a very deep trauma and there is a lot of hatred but hatred which is very motivating Mm -hmm. and it's like really gives you this energetic i don't know like push and boom Mm -hmm. to work Really proactively to really stand up and fight for it. Because you understand that we have been put in a complete injustice. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's very, I don't even have words for this, it's very wrong. You understand that and you want to correct that. And we also owe it to many people who are dying and will continue, unfortunately, to die. I don't know. It's an existential fight. And once you start it, you have
0: no way back. The amount of unity that has been displayed by both the Russian speaking population and the Ukrainian speaking population, there was very solid unity in both parts of the country, which I don't think everyone expected, but certainly Putin didn't expect. That has been remarkable.
2: Even I didn't expect that, yeah. to be honest.
0: Why do you think that happened? Why do you think there was so much opposition and so much? It seems even more so in some parts of Eastern Ukraine, where they were so upset with Putin that they were really taking extraordinary measures to combat the Russian troops.
2: Yeah, for me, it's also some kind of phenomena because I come from the west of the country. It always has been pro-Ukrainian, pro-European, so it's an easy case. I lived in Kiev for 10 years, so I perfectly know that being patriot in Ukraine is not about the language you speak. It's like Ukrainian identity, like modern Ukrainian identity is very, I would say, political identity. So it's not about that much ethnicity or language or religion, but it is about the political stance you take. Mm -hmm. The first factor is the very brutal violence that is happening by Putin's Russia and by Russian army, it's completely unacceptable. It's so brutal and also so open. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the the way he does it, everything is very public, very Mm -hmm. social media as well. Like you can see the images, you can, everything is traceable. So when you see it, Mm -hmm. you have this like first instinct to fight back because you understand that this is abnormal and it's very inhuman. Mm. The second factor is those republics that were recognized by Putin as a pretext for invasion, the life there is hell. And I think regions around know this perfectly well. So even on the level of economic well-being, people understand that it's much better to be the part of uh, Ukraine independent like proper functioning state and also Mm -hmm. democratic rather than some republics that are not recognized by the Mm -hmm. world and where like terrorism or Mm -hmm. whatever is a norm, everyday norm. So nobody wants to become that. I think the leadership of Zelensky Mm -hmm. is also a very important factor. So Zelensky is probably the first Ukraine's president that is a very inclusive figure. So he represents the country, he doesn't really belong clearly to one part, East or West. Mm-hmm. He used to be very popular, especially in the Eastern and Southern uh, regions. I think he, he lost it yeah, through his term, but overall his leadership in this war is really uniting the nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Unbelievable, really. There are a lot of questions the last few months, maybe a couple of years even, about how how firm he was going to be on corruption. I think he fired the, whatever the equivalent of the attorney general is there. And that was seen by many people as him not being very strong on corruption. He certainly has been an incredible leader. He's, he's risen to the challenge in a way you can't imagine any other leaders in the world doing something like that. It's remarkable to think of a prime minister or president of any country to be able to take the actions he's taken and put himself in such jeopardy it's remarkable really is a incredible testament of leadership there
2: i know i am so proud (laughs) of the fact Mm -hmm. that finally ukraine has that kind of leadership and that it is seen and acknowledged by the world i do think that well on corruption it's not that black and white Mm -hmm. i personally think that he's definitely less corrupt than our previous president i overall don't think that zelensky is corrupt Mm -hmm. but i think that he lacks many expertise and he has been obsessed with the idea that only trusted people have to surround him mm-hmm. and have to be in all the branches of the government executive and parliamentary now it seems like it did work for him because they act very swiftly and they act as a united front. but also i must say that like consolidation on the level of society and um, Politicians is really unique because the threat is unique, so everyone is really united. And Mm -hmm. yeah, no matter the disagreements politicians used to have or society used to have, now we have a clear goal and we understand that it's not the time to debate.
0: The impressive act by the Ukrainians in general to decide to stay and fight is remarkable. There's another path completely where everyone could have said we're leaving, we're all leaving the country. And that has not happened at all. That seems uniquely Ukrainian. And I don't know if that's because you've been at war already for the last eight years or whether there's the, you just said the love of the country is so deep, that's absolutely ingrained, but it's not necessarily the same thing that would have happened elsewhere in the world.
2: Yeah, I think it doesn't come from a good background, to be honest. Our history is pretty tragic. And if you listen to Putin's speech before the evening, he recognized that republics in the east of ukraine Mm. you would understand that he denies the very right of ukrainians to exist Mm. he doesn't accept the fact that we can exist and that we can choose our future Mm. which is pretty humiliating Mm. and it's also a big driver for people to stay and prove that, no, we do have this right, we are living on this land. It is our history, it is our identity and our right. And uh, of course, I'm not saying that it is very, that those who left are traitors or something. Everybody fights on their own front. And I'm very happy that there are around 15 millions of Ukrainians uh, living around the world a lot of them have already a different citizenship or dual citizenship but what Ukrainian diaspora has done for Ukraine is also like unimaginable like i think this is why we have so many protests around the globe and this is why it became the issue for the whole world i don't know why so many ukrainians stayed but like for me personally my parents pushing me to leave every day several times per day because they are saying that I'm still young and I have to enjoy my life and
0: it's true why are you still staying there
2: I'm, I'm not saying that yeah I don't I'm not saying that I don't want to enjoy my life but I want to enjoy my life here honestly I have no problem with traveling or relocating for work purpose or whatever purpose I studied abroad I works abroad but this is a completely different context like for me leaving my second home in a period of one month will be really hard emotionally Mm -hmm. because again you have to leave this place with the idea on the back of your mind that this might be the last time you see it Mm -hmm. and it is insanely hard to somehow accept it. And, and yeah, well, I'm also not leaving because my parents are here. And well, I don't know how will I manage to evade them in case uh, it becomes very dangerous here. It's much easier to, to have some control over the situation once you're on the ground together with
0: them. Do they want to stay? They don't want to leave.
2: My mom doesn't want to leave. My dad cannot right,
0: right. because yeah. It's a very difficult situation that separation of gender is there because. You can see it in all the refugees that are arriving in in Hungary or Poland, and one of the most difficult part is the fact that they can't be with their partners, leaving their partners behind to fight. Such a difficult situation to be in. So I can definitely understand that. Let me ask you about what's going on in the eastern part of the country, where it does seem, to me at least, that Putin seems to be consolidating a whole lot of access to warm water, you know, whether it's, you know, he's now even attacking Odessa or planning to, and then there's the the entire coastline, basically, of what was Ukraine's coastline seems to be questioned right now as Putin's forces are attacking the entire coastline. If that's where the war reaches a stalemate or ends, that is not going to be a very easy solution or a very comfortable place for Ukrainians. How do you feel about the fact that he's being so strategic about those ports and the cities, which are so important to Ukrainians?
2: To me actually he's not been strategic in a sense that I have been deeply surprised by how cruel, severe and massive have been his attacks on Kharkiv. Yes and it is really war crime. I mean, it hasn't been uh, ruled so by the court. but what is there? I have some background in the international humanitarian law and this for sure, is unimaginable. For sure. And definitely war crimes the
0: indiscriminate bombing is unbelievable and the advance on all these cities and the way that they've advanced and the sieges are just un- inhumane in every respect if the war reaches some sort of ceasefire stalemate and they say okay well i've already made these gains along the eastern coastline here that's going to be a very difficult solution it's not really a solution it'll be a stalemate but if that's where it's landing up it's not going to be very easy for everybody because it's like an expanded f- version of what you had before plus no access to the water
2: Yes, but what I wanted to say is that what he's doing in these regions is the strongest vaccine for people to be anti-Putin and anti-Russia. That's why for me it's completely illogical and insane. I honestly don't get his strategy, but it's what he has done is just built a national idea over over a week which is very strong and united all across the country.
0: You know, he might believe that he's captured some of these territories and he can keep them.
2: i just convinced that right now, Ukrainian society and also leadership is not ready to accept any peace deal <laughs> that will limit Ukraine's territory to something like smaller than it was when we started the war. What is more aware, I think that not sure about the society but i think that leadership wants the full donetsk and luhansk goblers back Absolutely. including mm-hmm. republics mm-hmm. with Crimea, it's more complicated i honestly cannot imagine the peace deal that will somehow agree to to the terms of Kherson not being in ukraine
0: mm-hmm. so that would be a very long term prospect there's no giving up of any territory Uh, we're looking at uh, the Russians have some capacity until the sanctions really take them down They have some capacity how long are you willing to do this for how long are you willing to live your life in this different way and how long do you think Ukrainians are going to be willing to do this for
2: that's the question (laughs) I don't know I hoped it's I hoped it to be over in ten days, but mm. it's already 12, and it doesn't look, yeah, like it's gonna be over soon. On the one hand, on the other hand, I'm, I'm still hopeful. I'm not ready to accept the fact that it can last for years. Time doesn't play for us. Mm. Time is not helping, definitely, because the more people die, the everyone becomes more demoralized, but also more angry. So. Yeah, this one is complicated, but of course, living in war is no
0: good. Mm -hmm. What's it like going to, in your part of the country at least, what's it like going to the store? Do you still have to go through barricades or, or stuff like that to get to where you need to go to? Is it fairly easy to get what you need?
2: It is fairly easy, but of course it is different. We have a few, yeah, like armed people that members of territorial defense Mm -hmm. around the town they're just like patrolling streets you can be stopped and asked to show your documents everyone uh, turns off light after 7 p.m so it becomes really dark and then you are also like alerted like you hear the stories that something might lie on the ground and be a mine or that this strangers might be deserters or what's the english word but basically those from the russian army but dressed as civilians so you have to be cautious and yeah it's very unusual i would say because i have always felt myself safe Both here and in Kyiv. Now, honestly, in Kyiv, I still have some like acquaintances who Mm. stayed there, but I wouldn't imagine myself there. For me, it sounds and looks very scary, like really scary. It does
0: look scary in Kyiv, although it seems that they're maintaining a remarkable resistance. It seems so amazing everywhere in the country. Time is not your, it's not helping you, but time is also extending because of the Ukrainian resistance. It's remarkable how much uh success they've had i think the world is learning a lot about ukrainians in terms of a character a a dignity and a community thinking and feeling that is unique i think it doesn't necessarily exist everywhere in the world and maybe it's because we've never all been through it but it must give you a lot of pride
2: you make a good point that you haven't been through it it's hard to imagine how would you react once you didn't go through that situation i think the I also, I did not imagine how will we react and whether we will be as united as we are. So I think I agree that it is extraordinary and I'm super proud of not only Ukrainians, but all Ukrainian citizens who live and fight there. And overall of people, even not here, like people around the world, how supportive they are, how ready they are to help. And how ready they are to speak up about the truth and like, I don't know, stand by and be apolitical, but understand that this is the war that is unprecedented and we have to, well, to stop it Mm -hmm. and to do everything possible to stop it. So I'm overall quite proud of humanity. I must say it is a chance for us to, to, to show who we are and maybe i would be very happy if finally people would distinguish ukraine from russia and ukrainians from russians because i think for too many years people did not occur which is i do not blame but still like in many cases it is offensive a bit once if you say that you are from ukraine and you're like oh russia and you speak russian i'm like no not really and when russia okay, maybe not the whole Russia, but Putin's Russia denies your right to exist, this is pretty like, triggering. So I am happy that this is an opportunity for us and for the world to learn about Ukrainians and Ukraine.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the what you're seeing the world do for you. There's this conversation about the no-fly zone, or various <laughs> names for it. There's these Polish jets that are being discussed. There's so much that keeps going around. Personally, do you feel like the no-fly zone is an important test of western support for ukraine do you understand that there's a point of view there that could trigger some sort of world war from
2: what i hear the no-fly zone is a test for the west Mm -hmm. in the eyes of ukrainians it is a test the west is failing because i studied geopolitics international relations and that kind of stuff i do understand the position of us and nato this is the tragedy of the situation that you understand a lot. But you also understand that Ukrainians, because of their geographical location, have to die and go through all the suffering mm-hmm. so that the rest of the world can live in peace. Mm-hmm. And this is not okay. No, it doesn't feel good. As a human being, I wish NATO would intervene. When I turn on my brain (laughs) more, I think that there are a lot of creative ways ways how without direct NATO intervention, we still can secure Ukraine sky. Mm -hmm. And I think that now is the time when the West has to be very creative, bold, and, and swift. And I honestly... I don't get the logic any, like right now, I don't get that logic of let's not provoke. Let's don't escalate because there is a threat of something bigger. Right. I just, honestly, I don't think it works for Putin. Like he imagines threats. You don't have to threaten him. He is already threatened. Right. So he needs to see a,
0: a, a solid wall. Someone said to me, I was talking to a friend of mine in, in Kiev and he, he was saying that it needs... He needs a firm, solid wall to hit against. He needs something that he knows there's no more moving. And that means firm resolve by the West to do everything that they need to do to stop him. So that includes absolutely a no-fly zone or whatever else needs to happen. It just needs to happen. And he should be given no room to maneuver around that. It seems that's the right attitude with Putin.
2: And honestly, I think he enjoys the fact that the West is scared of him. His logic is, I can show off with this nuclear button and I can... I don't know, show my muscles and show to them that I can do whatever atrocity one can imagine just because I can. And you-
0: Yeah, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but let me ask you a little bit about the one thing that has been resonating with me a lot, is the long-term trauma that people are going through. I mean, it seems that most Ukrainians that I still see on TV still have that kind of look in their eyes where they're still in an acute state of trauma. They still are suffering a horrible act that's happening right now to them that normally triggers sort of the fear flight or fight response in people but it doesn't let you really process anything it doesn't really let you understand what's going on or put it in perspective that normally comes long after these traumatic events and you look at the, the faces of these children in 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 these refugee camps it's the same kind of things these are traumas that are going to last lifetimes i think it's an untold part of this war is how damaging it's going to be to the mental psyches of so many people in Ukraine, also outside of Ukraine, but mostly in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about what it feels like mentally? Like, are you able to process any of that stuff? Are you able to process what's going on?
2: You you are right. It is an untold side of story. And I think it's gonna hit us all after it ends. Mm -hmm. And the effect of it is really unknown. And all of us will definitely need some therapy and the majority of us will definitely don't do it. (laughs) I I personally have been a participant of the revolution of dignity and I was only 18 back in the days. So for me, that was the biggest trauma of my life. Mm. And I thought that this is going to stay like that, but no, (laughs) there is another trauma on the horizon, which is even bigger. I don't know already, but I think the majority of Ukrainians right now are very mobilized. Me personally, I live with my parents and I understand that they cope with the stress and with the news worse than I do. So mm-hmm. I understand that I have to support them. Mm-hmm. And because you understand this, you are collected. You try to stay optimistic, even though you read a lot, you process, you analyze and you understand that the situation is very complex, Mm -hmm. but you still try to ensure some emotional support. And for that, you have to block whatever, whatever pain or doubt you have to block that. So I I know that it's not healthy, but this is how you persevere. Yeah, mm. I, I don't. Really yeah, that's exactly what happens.
0: People with PTSD. That's what they describe. They describe a, you know, needing to at the moment you're not able to go through this process of of understanding what's going through. So you put up these protective walls, but then you know sooner or later that needs to be addressed. And it, it's interesting to see how well you're coping with it. And I hope somebody's paying attention to the PTSD part of this. I want to thank you very much for your time today. Is there anything you want the West to know? I
2: think that it is very important for Ukraine and everyone in Ukraine to feel that we are not alone Mm -hmm. and to feel that we are treated as equals because for too many times Ukraine has been, you know, the object of geopolitics and the ball within the geopolitical game between US and Russia, or Mm -hmm. whoever else. And uh, I think that we proved within uh, this 12 days that we are an independent and strong actor with our identity that we are ready to defend, and with very Western values mm-hmm. that we are also ready to defend, no matter whether we are seen as Western or not. And I would you know, love everyone in the West, I'm talking more about governments, to mm-hmm. keep that in mind when the war is over and mm-hmm. to still to, to be able to treat Ukraine as equal i also super, super thankful to everyone who supports Ukraine. And it seems like there are millions of people mm-hmm. who do that. So I just want to say that it's really heartwarming these days. And it is necessary. And you should not underestimate the meaning of it for us.
0: Mm-hmm. It is heartwarming to see the world stand up to that. There is such a an understanding now of how valuable freedom is. You spoke about participating in the Dignity Revolution. These are very important moments in fighting for freedom and fighting for democracy. Uh, And uh, it seems that Ukraine is very much on the fault line of history there. You're experiencing so much of it and you're getting to uh, be a first-hand witness to so much of it that in some ways, It's a remarkable gift. It sure seems to us like the many pictures and videos we've been showing over the last few days are an indication of exactly that. The United Nations, by the way, is also saying that it has evidence of cluster munitions um, that have been used, and we think that's, in fact, uh, clear in some of the video and, uh, and pictures we've been showing over the last few days. Hopefully, the additional sanctions that have been introduced in the last 24 hours, which include the G7 and the G8, taking away the most favored trading nation status of Russia, which means increased tariffs could now be added to Russian goods. Uh, That's another factor that's beginning to play uh, into the uh, calculation around how long uh, we think uh, Vladimir Putin can withstand all these terrible sanctions. And so we'll keep watching that. Uh, My thanks to Lilia tonight uh, for uh, having spending some time with us and also to Eric Garland. Really appreciate your time tonight as well. The news will continue and the narrative will continue to follow the news. We'll be back on Tuesday, at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Until Tuesday, have a great weekend. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.